ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hey guys, welcome to Giggly Squad, a place where we make fun of everything, but most importantly, ourselves. I'm Paige DeSorbo. I'm Hannah Burner. Welcome to the squad. Giggly Squad started on Summer House when we were giggling during an inappropriate time. But of course, we can't be managed. So we decided to start this podcast to continue giggling. We will make fun of pop culture news. We're watching. Fashion trends. Pep talks where we give advice. Mental health moments. And games and guests. Listen to Giggly Squad on Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. You're listening to Pop, the History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. You're more professional than me. I never let people know when I'm st- when I start because I want all the all the scoop. <laughs> that's really bad i know that's not you don't resent it though. i know i'm a bit naughty <laughs> well listen i mean i presume you are what well, you look you know you're in your studio it looks a little bit like a bunker there that's in yeah. cross isn't it yeah it's, it says yeah tile yard yeah looks quite plush it's a bit it's 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 um the way it's happened is quite interesting it used to belong to a friend of mine called drew masters who uh, is a film composer, and he moved out. And um, I was asked to move in here ages ago, and I said, look, I really like that studio. It's the only one I really like. I said, but I can only afford to pay for it for three days a week. So they let me in, and now they can't get me out. <laughs> I did love to put the rent up. <laughs> You're still on the three days a week pay. Uh, yeah, yeah, but I, I get to use it more than that, so it's great. No, it's beautiful. It's like a 1970s studio, you know, no windows, no clocks. Just a, a so no time. Way. You never know yeah. what time it is. Yeah, yeah right in the zone. Yeah. Now every interview I've I've uh, really ever read with you, it always has a reference to the steel forges in Sheffield and this sound that I suppose was really the sound of your childhood yeah. when you were growing up. What emotions yeah. did that sound have for you back then? What did it mean? I didn't really, you know, it's a bit esoteric for a young child to think about such things. It was just normal for me. Um, it's only later I've come to kind of post-rationalise it and go, because I found, because I just thought it was, I thought everybody had the same soundscape. You know, why wouldn't you think that? Uh, we had, you know, we weren't living in a world of internet and sharing ideas and stuff like that. It was just me on my street in my two two down house and outside toilet no bathroom uh with the windows open in the summer and listening to the deep kind of heartbeats of the drop forges zooming up uh from the uh, the valleys in sheffield you know from, how have you from... rationalized it later on then how have you actually then um, what it is uh, i've only rationalized the the kind of uh I suppose it's nostalgic effect it has on me. I, I, I've always loved um, the sound of metal being, being worked on, in different ways, because it was just part of my everyday soundscape. I also love the smell of metal being worked on. You know, there's a certain ozonal quality to it which I really like, and it was a common thing in Sheffield. And, um, but the big giant drop forges were the thing. 
because they that they those sounds traveled miles you know you could hear them miles away whereas when you walk around the city center at that time it was all kind of the sound of finishing off and grinding and and stuff like that so uh, i know it sounds a bit like you know the four yorkshiremen sketch but that's what it was like you know how was your childhood how how was your relationship with your parents were they a supportive family what do you feel that they gave you and what do you feel that they maybe didn't give you um i am very lucky in as much as um my, my father was was a tool maker steel worker uh and my mum was a uh, you know a stay-at-home mum looking after the family which is quite common in those days um we had virtually no money in fact we'd regularly run out of money before my dad got paid on Fridays uh, and you know we'd be stuck with you know, you know <laughs> Sutherland's uh, Sutherland's salmon spread sandwiches and stuff like that you know like really really horrible stuff uh, but you know we and it, it sounds like a bit of a cliche but they were the most loving parents you could imagine I didn't know anything other than love when I was growing up my dad was working so hard that I only really got to spend time with him at weekends we we loved you know hanging out together in parks and going and playing crown green bowling in the local park and yeah uh, you know imagine working sixty hours a week in a in a dark metal dust filled factory so like the out the, the outdoors was a very important place for us and uh, you know we had a very strong community there were lots of people we knew all the neighbours on the street were the, all the kids of Roughly the same age, would play football together in the streets. Um, I look back on my childhood as being um, idyllic, really, in a lot of ways. You uh, nothing to do with finance, quite interestingly. Yeah, but wait, so obviously, then, I mean, it wasn't to do with finance in in in, in the sense there was finance. Yeah. Uh, but you know, uh, having a father that worked in that industry, and uh, I having working class parents, I presume that also the social aspect, which was something that uh, was also transferred to you, because that's something that not has not only been through your music, it's also been part of your life. Yes. Um, so how, how important do you see that as having parents uh, of that class and experiencing their problems and issues as a young child? Well, they, you see, they saw their problems as being um, the problems that we would all regard as just everyday living problems. So it's just a different context, that's all. Whereas, you know, you know, I'm living in a posh part of London now, Marylebone Lane in a lovely penthouse apartment, and I'm surrounded by posh people, essentially, um, and, and lots of restaurants and shops and all the things all the material things that you could possibly wish for really but um there's not as much um there's not there's not as much uh, soulful satisfaction uh, just generally in the uh, in, in the in the zeitgeist of the place and that's pretty much true for a lot of london apart from you know specific local communities in different areas um and so I grew up in a, a very busy city with a strong uh, socialist perspective 
um, which I regard as completely normal and still do. Uh, I think, why should you not want to look after your fellow man, even if you don't know them? Um, there was no... Ra I didn't... I never saw any racism when I was growing up. I never saw any... Um, I used to dress uh in my formative years in the most outrageous ways uh i suppose you call it cross-dressing really um i used to wear women's clothes as did philoki all the time you know when we went out it was from the glam period in the early 70s ne i was never threatened never ever shouted at anything you know, I do think we're uh, we're now in a different age where uh, intolerance seems to be on the rise, as amplified by social media. And um, I'm very grateful for my socialist background. I'm very grateful for uh, what my parents taught me to be right and wrong. It seems terribly unf uh, out of fashion at the moment. In fact, I posted something on Facebook yesterday saying that, you know, this new uh, lexicography of framing reframing uh spin um uh, uh uh handbrake turns you know this kind of thing where the normalization of of uh, uh or the obfuscation of reality and truth is a really dangerous thing more dangerous than fascism as far as i'm concerned we're in a, we're in a kind of anti-truth war at the moment where um it's now being normalized that everything uh, it's a, it's assumed that you can't trust anything that any politicians say, which is really frightening. I talk to a lot of black cab drivers in London who seem to be the core audience for Heaven 17 at the moment, and uh, they all know Heaven 17. And um, get talking to them, and all of them, once you scrape the surface, want to do the right thing. No, not all of them, but most of them. You know, want to be decent human beings, but they just have been told so incessantly that everything, you know, all politicians are bad, all opinions are equally bad. So this false equivocation thing is a problem. So at the core of my being is socialism. I believe in people. Uh, the art that I create is aimed in a kind of sonic muralist way uh, uh, as being um, aimed at people. I regard myself as. Uh, uh, I want to be one of the people. I don't want to be above them or or um, uh, some kind of elite group. I'm not interested in that. And that's permeated my entire creative career. But did your parents support you when you went... Um, you, I mean, first of all, you went to that art collective. Um, I can't remember yeah. what it's called now. Um, uh, meat, whistle. Yeah. meat Whistle. Yeah, you went it wasn't... To... Uh, that's a very posh way of putting it. It was a, basically a youth club with a, with, with a few... Uh, with a, with a few bells and whistles added, you know. Um, but it, with, but what came out of it was uh, experimentation in different artistic forms, music, art, sculpture, theatre. Uh, but there was no kind of... Uh, there was a little bit of kind of gentle guidance from the people who ran it, but basically it was our thing. But there's also a social aspect to it because people came from yeah. different walks of life there. So exactly. can you tell me what you encountered and how that was? Can you actually remember going there initially oh, and yeah. encountering these different people? Oh, absolutely, yeah. It was... Um... Well, first of all, I, I passed my LEM Plus and went to the best grammar school in state school in, in, in Sheffield called King Edward Seventh School. Looking back on it now, a wannabe private school. So it's like this big kind of Palladian edifice 
uh, it was quite impressive. And all the all the all the masters wore gowns and and uh, and mortarboards and oh, it was ridiculous. It was ludicrous. It was a stage school, you know. And then it became comprehensive halfway through. Um, the standard of education was rubbish, by the way. I thought, uh, looking back on it now, and I'm involved in education now, as you know. Um, I, you know, I left half halfway through the first year of A levels. I just couldn't see the point in staying on. I wasn't going. I wasn't going to go to university. We couldn't afford. My parents couldn't afford to support me while I was at university. So, um, even though I, my uh, masters wanted me to go to Oxford or Cambridge and take the take the entrance exams, I said, "Well, there's no point. You know, I'm just got to go and." earn some money for the family we, we were skin you know uh, so that's what happened and i don't regret that at all and i forgot what the original question was now yeah it was just about the people at meat whistle and uh what all right they okay had so on meat whistle, yeah. can you describe them can you yeah. describe who was there yeah yeah so i got into uh, so basically i was in a i met the reason i mentioned king edwards is because i met a different class of people there initially because uh, they came from all, you know, a lot of professional walks of life. That's where I met Phil. His dad was the chief postmaster at Sheffield. And um, but when I got introduced, uh, when I left school, I um, my first job was uh, assistant manager at the Co-op. Um, uh, and one of my friends that uh, who is still my best friend to this day, uh, Paul Bauer, who had a band 2.3 at the time on Fast Records. Um, became uh, my closest friend and uh, we met at the co-op you know boning bacon and stuff and he said oh you should come down to this all right I'll come down and say hello and it was just brilliant and that's where I met Glenn and Ian from Hem 17. Ian Reddington the actor is still a great friend of mine uh, lots of people I still keep in touch with and the it was a wide range of people from different backgrounds Oh, Addy Newton from Clock DVA. What was the commonality between you and these other people? What were the commonalities between you? Um, we were all outsiders, I suppose, and mavericks um, from uh, widely varying backgrounds, and mavericks in their own in their own uh, in their own ways. And the fact that you found people who were uh, like-minded was was a miracle, you know. I tell you what, let me try a different um, let me try a different methodology here of connection. One sec. Okay. This might be better. Let's try this. Um, yeah. So there there were some real weirdos. I mean, you know, uh, people who were uh, had extremely original ideas but were not um uh, didn't have the outlet for them until we all came together um yeah uh, meat whistle do you think you would have had a career um in well it's in, in a number of things but music and i want to call it art really in music and art um without that chance that meat whistle gave you do you think there would have been another route for you to have success um i i've pondered this question and um i think it would i think unlikely 
Because the, my my until Ember went to Meat Whistle, there were no. Um, I didn't really have a group of friends, apart from Phil Oakey, who went to my school. I didn't really have a group of friends who were of that. Uh, uh, there wasn't a pool. There wasn't a gene pool of people that were creative like that. All my friends at uh, at school were nice people in everything, but most of them were just interested in getting a steady job and going to university. Uh, and I, yeah, I wasn't going to do that because we couldn't afford to. So, where would I have met these people? What connected you and Ian Craig Marsh initially? Um, I've never met anybody like him. He was a completely unique character. I mean, um, what way? Please describe him. Um, very quiet, but kind of uh, now I know, uh, you know, kind of he'd be diagnosed now as kind of bipolar, I suppose. But um, very manic when he was on, and very quiet when it, when he and, and reserved and self-doubting when he when he wasn't. Um, very funny, very um, creative, very. Uh, f I mean, just a great and interesting person, and 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 the, all the stuff that we did together, the future, um, the early Human League, Hem Seventeen. And the and early BEF could not have happened without Ian. One um, of the he was he he was a he also came from a similar background to me. His father was a builder, uh, and it was only later, um, and it, they lived in a slightly nicer house in 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 a slightly better area of Sheffield, but still working class. His parents were lovely. It was only later that I found out that. Um, his parents had won uh, had won the pools just after we met met, and um, we were wondering how come Ian was getting all these amazing things like early VCRs and and stuff. I'm going, where's this money coming from? His dad must be a really successful builder, and he'd won like hundred grand, which is a lot of money in those days, on the pools, and still in the you know quite a small house and lovely people, and uh, so that enabled him to kind of finance buying the early his early equipment and recording stuff and he never let on until later and um and he, uh, just an incredible person Ian yeah just wanted I was like go back just a little bit because we're of similar age and in the in that era there was a lot of science fiction in literature um there was a lot of science fiction on tv and there was the BBC Radiophone Workshop, which was Radiophonic, yeah. Radiophonic Workshop, sorry, yeah, which is ex incredibly experimental. Yeah. Um, I know that science fiction literature has clearly had an influence, you know, just yeah. the names and so on. Um, and you've been always been very much interested in the, in the, in the future. But how, um, the word is, how instrumental do you think that the music of those science fiction series and films, Quatermass of Doctor Who, how instrumental was that in actually influencing you in an early age? Well, uh, completely uh, important. I mean, things like Forbidden Planet, you know, Louis and Baby Baron, and um, I mean, it's, you know, it wasn't just music, it was everywhere. I mean, loads of science fiction series on TV, you know, Lost in Space, 
Space Patrol, the the um, marionette program, which is an offshoot, in a way, from um, all the Thunderbird stuff, Stingray, Fireball XL5. Um, everything seemed to be about the future, you know. And then, of course, uh, got to my teens and became a big fan of science fiction uh, writing and novels and writers. An enormous fan of uh, um, the more the more out there ones, shall we say, like um, J.G. Ballard and. Um, I kind of like Isaac Asimov. Uh, I really liked uh, Ray Bradbury, and uh, um, I mean there were so many. I, I just, uh, you know, kind of feasted on on science fiction. Couldn't get enough of it um, because you've got to understand that uh, this time, by this time I moved into a, a more modern council house, but we had no books, none, and we had I think we had sorry, we had six. Uh, volumes uh, of different um, uh, different subjects from the Encyclopedia Britannica. That was it. That was all my dad could afford. So I, you know, I read those cover to cover about ten times each. And then, uh, as soon as I um, uh, went to the children's library and then to the main library, that was the highlight of my life at that point. Was being able having access to all this amazing writing. So I've always had a voracious capacity for learning which it just goes to show how shit that that my school was really because they didn't identify it uh or or encourage it so um yeah there's this and also people forget how absolutely crucial uh in terms of mood of the times was the space race you know you cannot over, you cannot overestimate how important that was it was in terms of um providing an aspirational target for the future how exciting landing on the moon for god's sake you know we've not done anything that exciting for decades i, I mean there's the, there's the mars mission i suppose but that's not going to be anything other than robots for a bit i shouldn't imagine so there you go my my childhood was obviously different in in many ways but i saw i was totally fascinated by the future as well and the future in aspects uh, of certain different aspects david bowie was the alien and i wanted to leave i wanted to get out of my home as a teenager you know i just wanted to yeah. escape in some way and um you know i was into all the the science fiction stuff into science fiction uh, philip dick and so on and i saw it as an escape rather than uh well i don't know it seems like there's a difference between my vision of it was an escape from my reality whereas yours doesn't feel like it was is that true no it wasn't it wasn't uh, it wasn't really an escape because uh, right so here he, here's the way i i um I, I categorize it we socially speaking had a very stimulating upbringing we you know always had good friends there was more and more interesting things to do and because we were denied a lot of a lot of um, ways to passively consume your environment your, your social cohesion was really important as teenagers in Sheffield I always lived in the city near the city center 
and therefore a, that's the like the student area so there was always this kind of mixing with the student cohort as well which is massive in Sheffield so there was a big social kind of excitement in Sheffield um, which wasn't predicated on on um, on um, consuming uh, it's the way I put it, uh, which I think is the major difference between somewhere like Sheffield and somewhere like London. Whereas I came to London, and when I moved down to London in the early 80s, there's so much stuff to do. There's that fear of missing out thing. So you end up doing lots of things, and that's how you meet people. And it's much more random. Whereas this was like, there was loads of things to do, but you bump into the same people all the time. <coughs> a totally different thing. And so... All your kind of common feelings get amplified in a much more concentrated way. Um, I've become fascinated. Well, I've always been fascinated with um, the effect of cities on people. I mean, I do actually do some lecturing about it with various architectural association and Bartlett School of Architecture. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I would have probably had my social background been different, gone into architecture or graphic design or something like that, I feel. Um, yeah, so uh, in other words, there wasn't really a, a need, we didn't really feel a need to escape, except everybody, it seemed that anybody who had any ambition ended up going to London. And there was a bit of begrudgery by the people who'd never made it out of Sheffield, about the people who kind of, they saw it as betraying their roots to a certain extent. Uh, but in reality, you know, when we signed, uh, when the Human League split and um, and we decided to make a real go of it with M17 and BEF, we wanted to be uh, on the spot to, to, um, to kind of engage in a, in a very uh, significant way with the record company so that we could increase our chances of being successful but because by that time we we understood that it was important it's not just a matter of having a phone call occasionally because you with a big company or biggish company like virgin it was important to be in their face all the time and so when we moved down to london we were actually five ten minutes walk away from virgin records in portobello and we used to go in there three four times a week for instance stuff like that yeah but commerciality can't have played that bigger aspect before because it feels like a lot of the arguments from the initial human league you and uh, uh in craig marsh and um addy and then with phil oakey coming in and he he adding a sort of uh possibly the commercial side of it by being you know the look um, of of the band, and also in the direction that uh, eventually uh, it seemed like he wanted to take what was left behind of the Human League. Um, it feels like that commerciality must have been the core argument back then. Was it, or was it something else? Well, it was the core argument when? Which well, when you when you split with Phil uh, Oakley, um, when that happened? No, no. What happened was um, the record label. We signed to Virgin, obviously we did two albums on Virgin. And they'd, they'd pumped quite a lot of money into paying for us to get on various tours with Susan the Banshees and Per Ubu and 
and the Stranglers and you name it. European tour with Iggy Pop. The, I mean, it used to cost money to buy onto tours for support acts in those days. And this was all, we didn't really understand it, but uh, that, that money was all adding to our unrecouped debt to the record company. And they couldn't break us into the mainstream because we were too uh, esoteric for them. No, they liked that, but they were just not making money. We were, we were trendy. And so unbeknownst to me and Ian, no, not so much Ian, but me, behind the scenes, they were working to, to uh, separate Ian, uh, sorry, Phil and Ian initially away from me. In other words, throw me out of the group because they regarded me as the kind of artistic, more esoteric part of it. And they want, and then they would, and then they were working behind the scenes to get some commercial, more commercial songwriters like Joe Callis, uh, et cetera, involved and work on and, and make the Human League into a, uh, a fully fledged pop group as opposed to a, a kind of pop rock avant-garde group. Um, and they knew that I would never have gone for that. You know, because it would have been uh, a complete abrogation of. of uh, so, um, anyway, that's the way it happened. It wasn't like us suddenly going, "Oh, we've got to earn some more money." We were doing everything we could. In fact, we were halfway through the third album when the betrayal of Phil and and uh, the record company and management happened. Um, but you know, convert that negative energy into po positive energy formed BEF with the help of Bob last and uh, and Hem 17 was the first project and as it happened Glenn was just coming back to Sheffield after being in London for a couple of years and asked him to be, he would have been the original singer of the Human League anyway had he been in Sheffield um, so it made perfect sense to start a new project and wipe the board clean This holiday season the best deal in wireless can only be found at Mint Mobile Right now, when you switch to Mint Mobile and buy any three-month plan, you'll get another three months for free. As the first company to sell premium wireless service online only, Mint Mobile lets you order and activate from home with eSIM. While saving tons on phone plans starting at just 15 bucks a month. For a limited time, buy any three-month Mint Mobile plan and get three more months free by going to mintmobile.com slash save. That's mintmobile.com slash save. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash save. Yeah. You're listening to Pop, the History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. I mean, although Penthouse and Pavement was a success, there wasn't, yeah. there wasn't really single success at the beginning, was there? How... How did you feel at that period with what had gone on in the past, what you just talked about, suddenly being in London, trying to make a success of what you were doing, but still not quite breaking through? That must have been quite a difficult period. Or was it, you know, like... No, I stage? think it was. It wasn't, because uh, bear, in mind, bear in mind that um, we'd also released the, uh, the BEF, Musical Quality and Distinction album. So our profile was high 
we were on the front cover of NME Sounds, you know, Melody Maker. Um, uh, with both Hem17 and BEF. And the and Penthouse and Pavement was a, I suppose you call it in, in record company parlance, a grower. But uh, it was in the top um, 40 for 75 weeks. So it were, the the sales were consistent and and um, that gave the record company, even though we didn't have any big hits from it, they could see the interest that was being shown around the world uh, in different marketplaces. And um, so I to give, I always do this, I always try and do this because it's very easy. It's a bit like, I, I always regard uh, record labels as, as being a bit like referees in football games. You know, they all, they're very easy to criticise. Uh, but the the whole thing couldn't happen without them. Largely, it's not quite the same now. But um, but in those days, it was essential. So, in terms of a record company, they were incredibly supportive to us. Uh, so when it came to doing the luxury gap, and we decided to go for the jugular uh, commercially, a large part of that was the fact that they never, at any point, put any restrictions on uh, on what it would cost. Uh, on the budget for the album never mentioned money even it was like what do you want to do where do you want to do it who do you want to do it with so we said all right we'll pick the best studio in london air studios at oxford circus um we will work with um we wanted to work with pete walsh again from penthouse and pavement but he wasn't available so he recommended his brother greg walsh which proved to be a an inspired recommendation uh, as he had all the skill sets of working with various soul acts and uh, Rod Temperton and, and uh, Jeff Emmerich, he was trained by at Abbey Road and, you know, vocal stacking of Heatwave and all that stuff. He, he brought that to the table, plus an immense knowledge about uh, engineering and mixing. Um, and so they never, and orchestras best uh, session players so they were really uh, an instrumental part of uh, ensuring that the, whatever we were going whatever the second album was going to be like we were going to get all the resources we needed to make it as successful as possible and to hopefully um, not just in the UK you know we were partially aiming also at the American market because American music sorry uh, English music was was uh, uh, doing very well in America at that point uh, from the, I suppose, new wave. We were classified under that heading at the time. Um, and so there was a um, possibility they could get huge advances out of American licensees to put out Heaven 17. And it worked. I mean, uh, Let Me Go was the, the first yeah. sort of successful single. And then came um, Temptation with Carol Kenny. Let Me Go is, in fact, my favourite single of all time. And mine. Um, and <laughs> I just mine. love it. Yeah. Uh, and um, the Carol Ken Kenyon Temptation was an absolute massive um, success. What was success like? And uh, what did it give you? I mean, in all aspects. Right. Um... Wow. 
success, success. I mean, obviously, incredibly um, uh, exciting. It was what it, as soon as you're doing it, you know, and you're on top of the pops and all the other TV shows, and you've been flown around the world to different TV shows. Bear in mind, we didn't perform live at the time, so the only way that the record companies had to promote the record was to either film a great video and send it to all the territories or fly us out to TV shows. Unfortunately, the tactic worked. So we ended up traveling all over the world doing all sorts. We ended up doing American Bandstand in America, you know, and shows all over Europe, you name it. Anyway, so, and and we got to do really uh, interesting, well-resourced uh, videos too and that and we were very interested in this new world as portrayed by MTV where you could service all the territories simultaneously uh, using a, a you know and the highest quality video videos so we became part of part of that scene the the net effect of it all was it just seemed like the party would never end really um, we didn't I got married for the first time in 1981 and I couldn't fit in our honeymoon until two and a half years later. That's how busy we were. Didn't have a holiday at all. Uh, because also we were doing... Um, my uh, production career was taking off at that point as well. And uh, right in the middle of doing the luxury gap you know the opportunity to work with Tina Turner and produce let's stay together which is my idea I'm glad to say um it just seemed it's really difficult it's it's like when you're in the middle of that kind of you're riding that wave it seems like it's never going to end and that's not just it's not arrogance it's just like you've got no other You've got no other experience or expectation, and uh, you know I was even I remember distinctly thinking, um, right, one one thing that characterises the work that I I've done throughout my career, I I think is my sense of uh, daring. I don't I'm I'm fairly fearless when it comes to creativity. I'll have a go at stuff. I'm not musically trained. I've never. I can't read or write music, and there I am in a in in in, in a uh, in a studio with a sixty-piece orchestra, and some of the best session players in in Britain, if not the world, performing, you know, writing string arrangements with our string arranger, and yeah, I'll have a go at anything. And that that goes for the production side of things as well. Working with Tina Turner. Who made River Deep Mountain High one of my favourite singles of all time? You know, I just at that time just thought if I continue being brave, which wasn't really that much of an effort to be honest. Uh, it's not that's not the same as being reckless, by the way. It's you 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 calculate what you think is worth taking a risk on, but but you just think. If something fails, well, you know, it's like a buses, you know, another one will come along in a minute. I'll just I'll just produce some more stuff for somebody else and that'll be successful. And amazingly, this kind of theory worked. Um until late in, until the second half of the eighties when we kinda of ran out of steam with um uh, and confidence to a certain extent with Hem seventeen. Uh but it it definitely worked for my production career. Um 
I remember talking to Tina Turner and Roger Davis about Ball of Confusion. Right. Which was on the album. And I remember yeah. they both told me, Roger told me that actually he had to set up a gig in Sweden to pay for the trip to London. I don't know. Really? I, I, yeah, and that, that when they came to London, um, Tina went into the studio, just sang it in one, Ball of Confusion, and thought That's right. that okay, this was just a rehearsal. <laughs> and that you, you had both said, no, that's it. Yeah, <laughs> that's yeah, perfect. yeah. perfect. Is that how it worked? Yeah, I remember saying, um, well, well, we'll do one for Lloyd's. That's what they say, isn't it? So as insurance in case something went wrong, but that's it. You know, it was the perfect performance straight out of the bag. But I've told this story many times before, but um, she said after she'd finished, I mean, she was in the studio for like an hour. That was it. And... Um, she said at the end, she said, Martin, Martin, that was, uh, that was kind of difficult to sing. You know, it sounded like there was more than one guy on that. And I said, it's the Temptations. There's four of them. He said, who are they? Honest to God, I swear on my children's life. That shows how far she turned her back on, on, uh, on soul music, black music. She wanted to be Rod Stewart, really, or, or, or Mick Jagger or or a combination of them and David Bowie, you know. Yeah, that's amazing. I mean, Tina is such a, uh, or at that period, I mean, I met her later probably, but such a sort of amazing energy to her. Amazing. And, a, and a, a wonderful, wonderful character. You know, what? What's a, but just to finish on the Tina point, she, uh, she's just a performer in the studio or on stage or, or on a film or anything what she's what she's born she's just born to perform so when she performs in the studio it's like she's performing to an audience you know she never got involved in the production of anything as far as i know uh definitely not with us uh she didn't show any interest in it or mixing or approval of mixers or she was just happy to be you know one of the best soul singers on earth you know yeah it's amazing did, yeah. did success give you confirmation of what you were doing? And for you as a, as, a, uh, as a musician, as an artist, to actually, wow, we're successful, that means I'm, I'm good. Yeah, I suppose so. I mean, how else do you meant to judge anything? I mean, yeah, but then you said you ran out of energy. You know, that was... Uh, no, not energy. No, no. Inspiration. Kind of inspiration. But that was 717. Okay. That was different. So what happened was... It's a long story, but um, we we made uh, our third album, How Men Are, which we were really, really proud of and happy with. And it's got, you know, This Is Mine, it's just great. It's got Phoenix Horns on it. It should have been a top 10 hit. And for, and I won't go into detail because it would take too long, but basically on the day where it was uh, storming into the charts, uh and we were due to go on top of the pops. The day before, Glenn uh, got out of his Jeep um, and exploded his cartilage in his left knee uh, and was in hospital. Uh, and he said, and you know, we phoned at top of the pops and said, look, you know, we're hoping to get him out and we'll, band we'll see what we can do, bandage it up. He was on morphine, for God's sake. 
Michael Hurl, who's a well-known asshole, I'm sorry to speak ill of the dead, but um, uh, uh, turned round to uh, Virgin and to us and said, um, he, can sit, he can sit on a stool and perform. He said, look, he's on morphine. You know, the guy cannot walk. Anyway, we made an effort. He came down and he stayed for an hour and he just couldn't. The pain was too excruciating. Uh, and and uh, we had to take him out. Michael Hurl, before we left, said, "If you walk out of the studio, you will never get on. You will never be on top of the pops again." This was our first single off the third album, <coughs> and we didn't. So we released "Sunset Now," another an, another you know, very commercial sounding hit, got uh, a certain amount of airplay, but because it wasn't going to be on top of the pops. The pluggers found it difficult to place on Radio 1 and yeah, commercial radios. And it's like a pack of cards falling. So, consequently, there were no hit, real hits off that album, even though it's, I think, it's my favourite M17 album. So then it came to the fourth album, and this really knocked our confidence. By this time, we were moving away from just pure the pure electronic thing. We'd we'd uh, been i'd been using a whole uh, a raft of session players for different bef productions and you know the stuff we did with i was getting more confident in production and less confident with hem 17. so we wrote some really good songs uh some of them weren't so good <coughs> but the point is the palette of sounds we were using was more traditional instruments and it, and suddenly we lost our vibe and more 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 so with the fifth album that's why we got dropped and it just didn't work really um, but it's, what's interesting is how you can lose con how even successful bands can lose confidence in their core their core uh, strategy you know over a period of a year two years you know uh, and I'm sure it happens with a lot of bands not just us but also you know the marketplace was changing at that point it was less about experimentation record companies were starting to want to control what singles got put out what the sound was we were moving into the pwl area of things getting into the charts was not just about how good the record was it was about establishing a brand you know and so on and so forth so you end up with a lot of kind of less exciting more kind of blue-eyed soul kind of things going on in the late 80s in the uk charts and so it just didn't seem to fit with us so much. And having such a distinctive voice as Glenn's, you know, which was um, of massive uh, benefit in the core of our uh, success, suddenly became a problem because uh, people go, oh, it sounds a bit old-fashioned, that now, you know? And with a lot of people, like OMD, for instance, uh, and, and a lot of those acts from the early 80s became unfashionable in the late 80s and got dropped. Um, but, as I mentioned, you know, production-wise, things were going from strength to strength. I was doing more soul with Terrence Trent Darby because that's, you know, I'm a soul man. I, can't, I used to go to the Northern Soul Clubs, etc., etc. So, uh, Sheffield's a soul city. and um, Could you dance? I was not a Northern Soul dancer. I would like to say I was. I had a friend, uh, a friend, a friend of mine called Moggy. Uh, I used to go with. He could. Oh my God, he was an amazing dancer, and he just looked like a normal guy in the street. 
you know. And just get him on the dance floor, and it's like fucking hell, amazing. Uh, I've always been in uh, in awe of uh, Northern Soul dancers. Yeah. What? Why do we have such an affinity for for this period of early eighties, even today? I mean, there's incredible affinity for that, and there's not only an affinity for that. There's, you know, as I saw in Hamburg, and as I felt, an incredible affinity to Heaven Seventeen. It's you know, like a sort of growing loyalty today for a band that was you know in a different period yeah i think um well there were several several things back then that that were we were quite prescient about i think one is uh we always stated overtly stated amongst ourselves in the band that we wanted to create music that would have uh, uh longevity I mean, it's a bit presumptuous to say timeless, but that's what we were aiming at. Uh, and as and, uh, as far as we were concerned, w you know, we the the nominal timescale we put on that was ten years. We said, you know, we want people still to be listening to this in ten years, and here we are, you know, nearly forty years later, and people it seems to be growing in popularity again, um, and I think. What was special about that time? Uh, the fuse was lit by punk, obviously, so everything's kind of framed by the kind of explosion of excitement. Ironically, I kind of like punk. I was a punk for a couple of weeks, but um, it was more about the um, the process that that engendered, which is anybody can have a go, right? That's what made my career. Suddenly, we thought we can't be any worse than them. You know, certain punk bands in the north, for instance, like the Drones or uh, Slaughter and the Dogs. It was just terrible. <laughs> I mean, terrible. And we shared the bill with a couple of them. And we went, oh, fucking hell, we really are no worse than these. We can do this. And we did. And I think a lot of people felt that. Felt uh, it gave them confidence. And then combine that with um, record companies who who uh, were suddenly awash with with uh, cash um, and wanted to ensure that um, they didn't have to pay as much tax as they could you know uh, they wanted to recycle the money back into signing new acts so um, they were they were just signing just about everyone you know who got anything resembling I mean look EMI for instance at that time uh, they tried to sign us by the way in 1978 but they were too corporate for us it was just not right we wanted to go with Virgin or Ireland so but uh, but EMI were late to the party so it got to like post-punk 80-81 and they're going God, we've got to get some of this stuff. Everybody's buying this new wave stuff. Come on, what are we going to get? And so, you know, people like Cabaret Voltaire, friends of ours, with all of, you know, I love them to death. They're our mentors and we'll be, we'll be friends forever. But the thought that they could make, you know, pop records is frankly absurd. You know, they had a go because they got the new kind of, the whole drum machine thing and the dance fraternity were into them and, they made some good records, really good records, but they were never going to, you know, be in the pop charts. And likewise, our friend um, Spiz Oil, Spiz Energy, 
Atletico Spiz 80, whatever you want to call them, who we went on tour with with uh, Susan the Banshees, we're still friends now. They got signed to EMI as well. They got huge advances, and I'm going, this is crazy. Everybody's getting signed, you know. So it was an entirely and unique, uniquely different period, where it was pretty much a scattergun approach on, uh, on, in, in terms of a lot of record companies. But the ones who, um, there was financial support, you know, for people exploring their thing. And maybe only, you know, two out of every ten they signed actually broke even. When they broke even, they usually went through the stratosphere. So in those days where the, where the 80s, in the 80s, where the place was awash with money, particularly the new paradigm to do with CD releases and recycling past catalogue and everything. They're going, wow, we can release all this about three or four times in the future. All of a sudden, it's like the Klondike, right? That's not going to happen again, ever. <coughs> you mentioned Ian Craig Marsh and getting the money from his parents who won the lottery to be able to buy his synthesizer. Have you still got your Korg 700, is it? Your first synthesizer, is it there? Yeah, I can show you, in fact. There it is. Okay. So tell me what you use that and, today. And the System 100. Oh, my God. Okay. <laughs> and the JP4. All right. So you've stayed loyal your whole life. Yeah. To, to your They're the only three sense, uh, physical sense I still possess. Yeah. I Everything mean, else is in the box. <laughs> one of the things that you do today is that you're a... Um, a professor and lecturer yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, I presume you impart knowledge uh, to your students what are the key things you say about creativity to them today it's very interesting because the the uh, the lay of the land is entirely different now it's very difficult for them to uh... <sighs> it's very difficult for young people now because what's the purpose of signing to a record company? It's to use their marketing clout. Uh, it's to use their their uh, their knowledge and their contacts in the music industry internationally. You know their sub licensees, blah blah blah. So that's not changed, but it's possible, obviously, to release your stuff yourself now. And I think a lot of people, are, a lot of young artists, are being encouraged to go down that route. Uh, and I think it's a little bit disingenuous a lot of the time because you still need to promote your work. I could, you know, there are various platforms like DistroKid, for instance. I could write an album this morning. I could knock out an instrumental album, have it out uh, to on all digital platforms uh, for sale or free within a week. And it costs me 15 quid a year. So if I can do that, everybody can do it. So it's how you direct traffic to what's coming out next. So for young people, this is immensely difficult. And I deal with, um, I, I, I teach a right into commercial brief <coughs> as, part, as my module as part of my work as principal of Tyler Education MA courses in commercial songwriting and, um, and production. And um, 
writing to commercial brief, as far as I'm concerned, is now about telling young people that that most people in the music industry or creators have to have five, at least five, maybe more different strings to their bow to make ends meet, to make one decent career. It's highly unlikely you're going to be Ed Sheeran. It's highly unlikely, you know, or equivalent. <coughs> and um, the vast majority of people uh, have to perform live to make ends meet, which is good. Um, but the recording field is very difficult now. Very, very difficult. I mean, you, you're uh, literally earning nothing from Spotify. It's a disaster, you know. So, uh, for instance, with Heaven 17, we we are not releasing... Uh, we've not released anything for a couple of years, but when we did release stuff a few years ago, we, and me and Glenn just decided not to release anything digitally at all. Again, it's all going to be on vinyl, vi directly via our website. Because um, that's the only way you can make money out of it. So, make things collectibles, you know. So finally, what, do you what, what have you learned from them? As, as oh. an older man with younger people who are coming into the business, what, you, um, what do you learn from I, I, I love their talent, their energy, their um, the joy they have in um, the joy they have in learning. Uh, right, being able to research uh, is, is is a very important thing uh, easily on the internet now. So, you know. It's like having the the musical musical equivalent of the Library of Alexandria on your on your mobile phone, isn't it? Really, in terms of music, you can pretty much listen to anything you want. Um, and now with podcasts, you know you can pretty much listen to all the people who are your favourite creators a lot of the time. So, um, I, the joy I see in in my students, and I do a lot of one to one mentoring as well revealing to them uh, the provenance of the things that they like uh, is a joy because then they it's like it's like I, I regard teaching as being like um, being a traffic cop now you know it's more about directing traffic than it is about actually imparting your knowledge you know it's about teaching them which rabbit hole to go down and then and then setting them free um, so that's a big difference now. The, the kind of research that uh, would have been needed to do that in the past would have taken, you know, weeks in the National Sound Archive, you know. So, Martin, thank you. I mean, I love the fact that your career has so developed and changed over the years. I can't wait for you to get back on tour. Uh, no, I mean, well, we're starting at the end of this month, actually. <laughs> Oh, uh, we're doing lots, lots of gigs throughout August, uh, festivals and stuff, and then of course we're doing the Hem Seventeen Presents Reproduction and Travelogue at the Roundhouse in London and Sheffield City Hall, September the fifth and sixth or something, fourth and sixth, can't remember. Um, and then we're doing our tour next year. I mean, there's all sorts of things coming up. It's a bit scary because we haven't we haven't performed for like eighteen months, but um, it'll be all right. I just finally want to say, you said the 70s in Sheffield, there was no racism, there was a sense of community and so thing. So on the 80s for me in London was sexism, racism, homophobia, misogyny. But, oh, right. but 
there was one thing that was brilliant about it, and it was music, and it was in particular your music. So oh, thank you thank very you. much. That's very kind. Thank you. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. It's the question that's on everyone's mind. How do you live a good life? How much do work, health, relationships matter? What about happiness, meaning, money, and love? What if you're alone or anxious, ill or in pain? These are the questions we explore weekly on the top-ranked Good Life Project podcast. Hosted by me, award-winning author, four-time industry founder, and perpetual seeker, Jonathan Fields. Every week, I sit down with world-renowned experts, iconic writers and researchers, and while everyone from Olympic gold medalists to world-shaking activists, A-list celebs, musicians, and more, all with a single goal, to help understand what it truly takes to live a good life and to feel a little less alone along the way. Listen to the Good Life Project podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com